0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Rubello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle Radio, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House in London and from around the world. Coming up, as the Israel-Hamas conflict intensifies, we get a powerful testimony from inside Gaza.
1: It was a hell in the street. Hundreds of people were running, but does not know where to go. I don't think we can handle the situation for longer.
0: We'll also look at the results of the Polish elections and hear how Italy's government is trying to solve its population crisis. Plus, reports from the road in Detroit, Paris and Copenhagen too.
2: I think it's delicacy. If you treat it correct and if you serve it correct, it's 100% a delicacy.
0: All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rabello. So welcome to The Curator. This was a week marked by the escalation of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Several international leaders visited Israel to show support, including British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who pushed for aid to be allowed into Gaza, and also US President Joe Biden, who offered his support for Israel in its war with Hamas, but urged it to avoid the mistakes Washington made after 9-11. To unpack this all, Monocle's Tom Edwards was joined earlier by Daniel Levi, president of the US Middle East Project, a group of former top officials whose stated aim is to advance a dignified Israeli-Palestinian peace and an end to occupation. Let's have a listen to their conversation on the briefing.
3: Daniel, thanks for being with us on the programme. Can I get some reaction from you, first of all, to the various comments that Joe Biden made? Um, Well, and the overall tone of his trip, what have you made of it?
4: Good to be with you, Tom. Joe Biden, of course, was supposed to both visit Israel and have a summit with Arab leaders uh, in Jordan. And that didn't happen. It was just the Israel part of the visit. And I think the American president was trying to pull off a very delicate balancing act, which was to wrap his arms around Israel, speak about that relationship, that alliance. Part of that is performative politics for domestic consumption back in the US. That was the public side of it. I think in private, it was also to try and get a sense of what Israel's aims are and how can one prevent an even more devastating civilian loss in Gaza. And the link between that and the likely spillover of this into a much broader conflagration. In terms of the, the Palestinian-Israeli arena, so that's the West Bank, where things people aren't focused on that, but there have been 65-plus Palestinian killings by, by the Israeli military or, or armed settlers in the West Bank, and, of course, a broader regional conflagration. Now, whether we managed to dance effectively at those two weddings or not, we are yet to see. I worry that Israel will hear the message of support uh, and do what you need as they see it and be far less attentive to the message of pull back, uh, don't escalate, because what we need now is to de-escalate and dial this down and have a plan for the morning after. And we are not there. The other thing I just say on that uh, Biden language, and I think this probably applies to British Prime Minister Sunak on his visit as well, is absolutely show empathy, speak to the humanity of Israelis after what they have been through. but. I think it's a real sin of omission and hugely problematic if they are not able to find language which empathizes with Palestinians and speaks to the tremendous suffering that is going on in Gaza. And it's not good enough to blame that on Hamas because this is, of course, an Israeli blockade and cutting off of, of everything for more than a week now and and of bombing. So they've, they've got to find that language. And I say that because right now we're in a really dangerous place in terms of discourse. The dehumanising is taking us to the precipice of hell, and I don't say that lightly.
3: Well, Daniel, I wanted to ask you specifically about that rhetoric, because I find it really interesting. There is this idea, maybe notionally only, that Western, key Western stakeholders are t- talking primarily about the US, but UK as well, as you mentioned with Sunak, are really working hard at maintaining this public-facing loyalty in their language to Israel. Do you think that there is a diplomatic balancing act, which is that by doing that, they're then better placed to ameliorate the Israeli response in Gaza, the response to Hamas, but its corollary effect on the people in Gaza, rather than being more balanced in their language, which could uh, mean that Israel decides, well, you know, we, we don't, we're, we're, losing our, we're losing our friends and we're going to be more aggressive in our response. Do you think that there is a diplomatic balancing act which is manifesting itself in the language we're hearing?
4: Undoubtedly. That, that is the playbook that they are pursuing. However, there are three caveats to that, and all of them matter, some more than most. The first is that Israel tends to not be good at listening to the quiet advice. That's that's the experience. That's what history shows. Benjamin Netanyahu is on camera, actually, from some years ago talking about how he wrapped the Clinton administration around his little finger. And he knows how to play America. I know how to, he knows how to use what he wants in the relationship and dismiss what he doesn't. Now, this is an Israel that's in shock, that has had a monumental deterrence, intelligence, military failure. And while it wants to reassert dominance, let's say in that arena, it also is feeling vulnerable. So maybe attentiveness uh might be there in ways that it wasn't in the past what what you and i don't know tom of course is how uh how much those sleeves are being rolled up and how much they're leaning in with a message of de-escalate don't let this spread in the private meetings the second caveat which i think is important to point out is these things have a spillover effect back in our own societies, whether that's the U.S. or the U.K., in terms of intercommunal relations. And, you know, there are people in this country, there are people in America who care passionately about what's happening to Israelis. There are people who care passionately about what's happening to Palestinians. And I think the job of leadership is to be able to wrap your arms around both of those things, to be able to speak to those communities and And speak about the humanity of the other side. Now, Biden, after the killing of a six-year-old in Chicago, a six-year-old Palestinian Arab American in Chicago, I think has gone somewhere in that direction. I've not heard that from British leaders yet. The third element is is when we look global. And what does this public positioning do to the US, and I would argue the UK, in terms of how the rest of the world sees us? Because the rest of the world looks at this and saying, says, wait a minute, and genuinely the rest of the world, and we saw that in the UN Security Council, where the US vetoed a, a very mild resolution last night, the UK abstained, and the rest of the world looks at this and says, wait a minute, if we're going to have a position where you guys talk about international law and the rules-based order, you have to be consistent. We long considered you not to be consistent, to be selective, to be hypocritical, and now here, especially after the position taken and a lot of the moral, self-righteous grandstanding that that much of the world has seen it over Ukraine. Here we are, we're seeing you exposed and you are not standing by what you claim. And I think that's quite devastating in in a world of shifting geopolitics. That's quite devastating for the US and its Western allies.
0: Daniel Levi in conversation with Tom Edwards there. Let's stay on this topic, because as part of our coverage of the conflict, we also heard from those inside the besieged Gaza Strip. Yusef Hamash is an advocacy officer for the Norwegian Refugee Council, and he sent us this powerful testimony from Jan Unes in southern Gaza.
1: So we lived another day like hell. Today, early morning, I have to do my daily mission, finding bread and water. And when I was at the market, they... They did four strike. between each strike was one minute, so we were hundreds of people in the street, we panicking, running, whenever we hear the rockets coming, we start to run, just doesn't know where to go. We take a rest for one minute, then another one, then like two minutes, then another one, then another one. It was a hell in the street, hundreds of people were running, but doesn't know where to go. I don't think we can handle the situation for longer. It's really chaotic. And also, honestly, we woke up. But I think our hearts are dead from what happened yesterday. This tragic situation, all what's going on around us. Add to that all of this bombardment. Also, the ambulance's sirens didn't stop. Just going back and forth around us because the bombing was everywhere in Khan Yunis since last night until now. This needs to finish.
0: Another story dominating the headlines this week was the result of the Polish elections, where the nationalist Law and Justice Party lost power. As early results started to come in, Monaco Zemanelson was joined from Warsaw so by Paul Waldy, who's the Globe and Mail's Europe correspondent, to get the latest.
5: Well, the latest is an exit poll last night, right after the polls closed. And it showed that the opposition coalition, which is led by a party called Civic Platform, is pretty much on track to win about 248 seats in the legislature, which has about 460 members. So they're looking like they're going to get a majority. Now, the final results come in probably later today or likely on Tuesday. But this exit poll is usually pretty accurate in predicting how it's going to end up, give or take a few seats. So as it stands now, law and justice is not going to win a third majority. And it looks like the opposition led by Donald Tusk will pull off a fairly major upset. So
6: just explain to us what this now means. We'll, we'll do law and justice first, because they were angling for an historic third term in power. And they had been pushing very hard on a security and an, e- and an economy ticket, hadn't they?
5: They had security is a big issue for them. Immigration has been a very big issue for them as well. Sort of social values, I guess you might say. So they've tightened Uh, Poland's abortion laws quite substantially. They've made it very difficult for women even to get contraception here. So they have kind of a a very conservative social agenda, but they also have a pretty liberal attitude when it comes to spending. They boosted welfare payments and social benefits, particularly to families, to elderly, and they they promised an awful lot more spending during the campaign. So that's kind of been where they've been headed for the past few years. However, they've had many, many clashes with the European European Union over changes they're making or wanted to make to the judiciary, which some said would really politicize the, the uh, judiciary. They also, of course, have come under a lot of criticism for the way they've basically revamped the state broadcaster here, and it's, it's essentially become a, a mouthpiece for the government. So the EU has been withholding billions and billions of euros in money for Poland. And now, of course, Donald Tusk is hoping to get that money unlocked. He, of course, has deep EU ties. He's promising to liberalise the abortion laws, you know, dismantle the changes to the judiciary and the state media. So it's, it's really going to be a, a sudden change for this country.
6: It will be an enormous shift back to, to where things were before PIS um, seized power. But just explain a little bit about you know, how big a challenge they have, not least the fact that the uh, press freedom issue has been an enormous problem, not least talking about this last election.
5: Oh, you mean PIS? Yeah, they've had a huge challenge. And I think there's been a growing unease in this country over the constant fighting between Poland and the EU. Poland's also been picking fights with Ukraine, with other neighbors. So I think people have kind of grown tired of it. But I do think, uh, much like we've seen in the U.S., the abortion issue really, really drove a lot of women to the polls. You know, the, the voter turnout was pushing 70 odd percent. It sounds like it's at a historic high And a lot of that had to do with women who just, I think, had enough and and went to the polls in big, big numbers.
6: Let's move to um, this liberal opposition party grouping and the former prime minister, um, soon to be possibly the new prime minister, Donald Tusk, very much portrayed by the PAS as the EU stooge, but a man who promised change or promises change
5: he is now he is a divisive figure in Poland people kind of love him or hate him he was prime minister here from 2007 to 2014 when the civic platform was the government they lost the election in 2015 and of course peace has ruled ever since Tusk went on to take on the presidency of the European Council which of course is a prominent position at the EU he did that for five years uh, did that through the Brexit negotiations too which a lot of people in the UK will remember but then he came back to, to sort of take over the leadership of Civic Platform. And it was controversial. There were people were saying, well, you know, he's a throwback. Why do we want him? He's kind of more of the same, more of an establishment figure. And he really tried to, to revamp the party as well by pushing it a little bit more to the left. He's promised an awful lot more spending as well, more benefits for uh, families, more benefits for the elderly, 30 percent hike in wages for teachers. So he's really gone on a spending kick, which was a little bit against civic platforms standard in the past which was much more center-right uh, but he is promising to to improve relations with the EU and make changes to the abortion law and things like that which I think resonated with people who'd probably just kind of had enough of law and justice
6: we have a, a, a very divided Poland now don't we because pis have by all accounts won the most votes for a single party but it, it is this group of the liberal opposition um, parties which which are- will have enough now to create a parliamentary majority. Just tell us exactly about how the, how the divisions have played out inside uh, Poland in terms of who voted for what. Because you mentioned there the fact that women were very much against the PIS because of their anti-abortion rulings. But you also had Polish farmers who were being courted by the PIS um, because of the amount that they had suffered when Ukraine had started to export its grain via Poland and, and making the Polish farmers suffer. So are we looking at a country now which is grouped very strongly into political allegiances?
5: Oh, very much so. I think you're you're seeing a country now that's split. It was before, but even more so now. There's a real urban rural divide now. I mean, the civic platform and its allies, Third Way and the left, pretty much took an awful lot of votes in the cities and in the bigger centers. And Peace's stronghold was in the rural areas. And you're right. I mean, Peace did win the popular vote. They got about 36%. Now, that's down from the 44% they got in the 2019 election, but it's still. More than any other party got and Tusk now has to negotiate a government with these other two parties third way and left they've all agreed they're going to form a coalition but of course the mechanics of that have to be worked out. And peace, of course, is not going anywhere. They, they said last night very clearly their leadership, we're going to continue our, our program, we're g- going to continue fighting for what we believe in, and they have a very strong base to do that from. So I don't think you know this divide is going away or that Tusk is really going to have, he's got a big challenge in, in healing the divisions in this country for sure. <laughs>
0: You're listening to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Carlotta Ribello. Now, Italy's right-wing government has approved a budget with the aim of increasing the country's birth rate. Families will be encouraged to have more children and there will be lower taxes paid by working mothers. Claudio Lavanga is an NBC News journalist based in Rome and he joined Emma Nelson with more on this story.
7: Well, she is trying to solve an old age problem in Italy. Allow me the pun, uh, because this has been a problem in more ways than one, in the sense that the country has had one of the, if not the, uh, sometimes lowest, lowest uh, birth rate in the whole of Europe and sometimes in the world uh, for many years now. And as a consequence, uh, there are less and less young people um, every single year, less babies are being made, less people every year. And still, when you break it down into numbers, it is shocking because there's just a statistics that came out a few days ago, about three days ago uh, by ISTAT, the uh, National Statistics Agency in Italy that says that the number of young people aged 18 to 34 has dropped by 23% in the past 20 years. And that's even more impressive if you look at how, if you break it down into regions. In the south of Italy, that's 40% less in in 20 years. Well, that's 3 million less young people living in Italy today than there were in 2002. And this is a major problem on several fronts. Obviously, that means that 3 million less people uh, who can work, pay taxes and pensions of those who came before them, leaving a gaping hole in both the Italian tre- treasury's coffers as well as pension funds. So the right wing government, uh, is trying to do something about it, like, you know, many, many governments, uh, before it. Uh, the problem here is that, you know, there will be two ways to, um, uh, to fill the gap. One is to allow, uh, young migrants, there are a lot of migrants, of course, in, in Italy, young migrants to fill the gap. Uh, but we're talking about a, a right wing uh, coalition that is very anti immigration especially the one led by uh, Giorgio Meloni. So she's, uh, instead of uh, thinking about legalizing uh, migrants so that they become legal workforce here in Italy, they are uh, making their arrival and life here uh, pretty difficult. So what they are saying uh, is that in this budget, um, they uh, promised to uh, give incentives to mothers with at least two children who will pay less taxes, and that from the second child onwards, nursery will be free. Well, the problem is that the cost of nursery was never on the list of reasons why Italians don't make children in the first place, Emma. The, the,
6: the issue here, isn't it, is Giorgio Maloney has, has done something incredibly clever here in t- politically, hasn't she? Because as Italy's first female prime minister, she is there emphasising, and I quote, that women are an untapped resource. And by emphasising the importance of working women economically, she can then pull in the immigration issue
7: well that's that's the aim of the government the problem here uh is that she's not really tapping on the real um uh issue here because as i mentioned you know the, the cost of nursery has never been the problem uh, or uh promising lower taxes for women with, from the second child onwards is not going to solve the problem because the cost of living will surpass that anyway uh so the, the Ital- this is more of a Cultural than an economical problem, uh, and bears a shared responsibility. On one side, you have young people who blame the cost of living, uh, for not leaving the nest until they are well into the thirties. Actually, according to Istad, um, the average age, um, uh, when, uh, young people, well, young people, people leave their, um, family home is 26, uh, right now. And the problem, uh, is not that because of the cost of nurseries, the cost of having babies, the cost of living in the gen- general. Uh, and I, lost, I just lost count how many times I heard young people um, saying that they're not leaving their families and therefore they're not getting married, therefore they're not having children uh, because it's just too expensive to do so. And perhaps it's a shared responsibility because of a cultural problem in the sense that, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I've, they feel like, Um, What's the point of leaving home when they are so fine there, uh, when it's so expensive to rent a house uh, and they, you know, live a life of a Peter Pan uh, until they are 36? And I'm talking, I mean, I can give you my personal story here. I'm one of the very few Italians who left home when he was 22. Uh, and it became a family tragedy. <laughs> Instead of my parents saying, uh, "You know, oh my God, you know it's great, you are going to uh, look for your independence," they said, "This is the beginning of a very dark family, uh, a very dark period for our family." Uh, and that was twenty-five years ago. Uh, and and it looks like that this sociological problem has not been solved yet. And people leave home later and later in the days. People do not make children, and as a consequence, uh, you know the economy suffers.
6: Claudio, I do hope that that problem has resolved itself uh, a quarter of a century on and that your family have forgiven you but when it when it comes to what Giorgio maloney's uh, plans are, is it going to make Italian couples or Italian uh, men leave the the, the the apron strings of of mama at home and actually go and go out there and make a ton of babies?
7: Well, my mother uh, would have been very happy if this new budget came in twenty five years ago well, twenty five years ago, fifty years ago because you know, she had four children, so nursery would have been three for for three of them. Uh, but you know, she managed. She managed anyway, uh, and uh, yeah, they forgave, they, they forgave me about three days in when I found a house and a job in, within a week. Um, but that's that's exactly the the issue. Will will this budget uh, really seriously uh, solve this problem, or should this be uh, a bit of a mixed uh, solution? Yes, give incentives to mothers. Uh, who have, you know, more than one child, Uh, yes, pay for uh, nurseries, but also allow the untapped resource also that there is in this country, which is the incredibly high number of young uh, and healthy and educated sometimes uh, migrants who are standing by waiting for asylum. And instead of, you know, kicking them out and making their life impossible, you know, do allow them uh, to work legally in this country.
0: also on the road this week, reporting from the World Economic Forum's Urban Transformation Summit in Detroit. The gathering brought together civic leaders, private sector and NGOs to discuss how to build more resilient and sustainable cities in the future. In Saudi Arabia, master planning is being implemented to revamp the historic town of Alula and bring the community back. Navdeep Hendra is the Vice President of Planning and Development at the Royal Commission for Alula, and she told me all about their vision. Alula is in the northeast
8: of Saudi Arabia. The most interesting thing about it, it's 22 square thousand kilometers, which is the size of a country like Belgium. So it's a county, but it's massive, it's huge. It's got 3,000 years of uh, heritage. so you know it's a very cultural landscape beautiful wadis and you know it goes back to the roman and the Nabataean empire so some great uh, u.n heritage listed sites there I'm not sure if you know hegra but the hegra is one of the u.n listed sites. we've got the didonites that cross the area and we've got the Dan site which is there as well old town and uh, we've got an existing community which is a brownfield site now and we are um, doing a master plan called path to prosperity to develop the master plan for the people who live in that region at the moment.
0: So talk to me a bit more about the master plan then, because we're talking about here you know, not only doing this in an innovative, sustainable way, but also there's an issue with retaining people and increasing the community that calls Alula their home. Talk to me about some of the considerations that had to be made then here.
8: So, the master plans, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a context, are very diverse in Alula. You know, the size of Alula, it's got 70%, which is nature reserves. So, we've got five master plans, which is the master plan one is called Journey Through Time. As the name says it all, it's got a variety of uh, historical and cultural assets in there. So, that master plan is very low in density. We want to make sure we've got the best heritage assets that are maintained the Master Plan 2 that's part to Prosperity that is where we have our urban communities people living there you know we've got about 22,000 people living there at the moment and the ambition is up to 2035 to have 155,000 across Alula but in the Master Plan part to Prosperity about 122,000 so that's a great increase and the only way we can reach there is to ensure there are right facilities there's a retention policies in place making sure that people can come back to their rural as well who have left or gone to other cities and that is where our attention is at the moment we're making the right moves not just from planning or spatial planning and having the right areas for development but also having the right policies in place having the right social initiatives in place for people to be able to come back making sure we've got the right training facilities for them and they can have a sustainable livable community so like a 15-minute city where they can have all the benefits in you know walkable city as well well and, and one of the most active cities in in Saudi Arabia so bringing the social infrastructure along with the sports infrastructure so bringing not just the older community to retain but also the younger community to come back and call the lula their home
0: What are then some of the challenges when you think about the community? And there's a big issue with building trust, you know, for that to happen, that not only having the older communities come back and new people to call Alula their home, there needs to be a level of trust between, you know, the vision for the city and uh, I guess a, a sense of belonging as well. So, how do you manage and foster those connections between? private, public, and community in order to create a community that works, a human-centric city.
8: And look, that's not an easy answer for it, but the trust can be built over time. And the only way you can do that is by providing some, as you go, your master plans might take 10, 20 years to realize, but how do you actually do things on ground that the people can start to look and feel? They can feel the difference and they're part of that plan making as well. So you're not building around them, but you're building with them. So that's one area where we've actually been quite involved with our community in in Alula as we're doing our master planning. So making small changes. So I'll give you an example. The local population or the youngsters who are there, there's a program that we call the Hawaii Program where we actually train them. They are the guides for the people who come in to take them to the cultural sites, talk about the intangible heritage because they know so much. They have actually grown up on those areas, right? And they've heard these stories from their grandfathers and so forth. So they bring that passion And that has been such a successful program that has given employment to, you know, thousands of youngsters, but also that sense of belongingness where they see that the government or the city, we are the city there, we are Mm -hmm. the regulatory authority, is doing a lot to give back to the community in some way. You know, we are upgrading these cultural sites, but it's increasing opportunities of employment for them. Right? It's bringing Alula on the world map. So you, you can see visitors coming in. You see international travelers coming in. And that opens up their opportunities for employment, not just for them to do jobs, but also local content. You know, their dates are being transferred around the world. They've got moringa farming, which was uh, almost dying, has been brought back in. You know, they can actually see these changes. There's a lot of focus we've got on art and culture. So now the, the local artisans, the local entrepreneurs, they're able to bring their expertise and the visitors traveling there, they love to buy produce from them. And it's just bringing those small early activations or early works, as we call them, as part of our implementation of the master plans, because a real implementation would take years, you know, for you to develop large scale assets and developments. But these are small changes that you make on ground as you go.
7: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
9: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
10: To find out how we could help you,
9: contact us
1: at ubs.com.
0: Now, the second edition of Paris Plus' Par Art Basel has been in full swing in the French capital. The art fair, which was taking place at the Grand Palais, brought together 156 leading French and international galleries. Earlier, Monocle's Robert Bound caught up with Paris Plus' director, Clément Delepine. let Let's take a listen.
10: Clément, thank you very much for your time. It's a busy day for you today here at Paris Plus in the heart of Paris. We are going from one week last week at Freeze in, in a temporary structure to another one here in Paris. I'm going to use the phrase small is beautiful or size matters. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us about what, it, what it's like to have 155 booths at your disposal rather than Art or sort of often 300 or something. Does size matter?
11: Well, size matters in the sense that it's um, also paramount to the experience. And I feel like, you know, visiting Paris Plus also gives you an opportunity of like... You know, immersing yourself in a high-quality, um, high-caliber art fair, but not feeling too dizzy about it. You know, leave uh, I don't know, serene and at peace, and uh, with the feeling that uh, you, you have seen enough.
10: <laughs> and you came from Paris Internationale, which is a different, has a different vibe. What's the atmosphere? We understand yesterday there was a lot of, um, I won't call them shenanigans, in such an upper echelon of the art world. But what was the, what was the atmosphere yesterday, and, and what is it like today? What's the, what's the atmosphere that you'd like to create here? At Paris Plus?
11: Well, obviously, I mean, the Art Basel Fair are, um, you know, celebrated for uh, their attention to details. You know, it's a certain look and feel. It's a certain attention to details again, a quality of service, you know. That's part of the experience. I mean, I, I often joke that I'm in a hospitality business, you know, in a way. I'm, sometimes I'm a real estate agent and sometimes I'm the concierge of a great hotel. But what I would like to bring, actually, to Paris Plus, to an Art Basel Fair, coming from Paris International, is a certain je ne sais quoi or a certain um, vibe you know or a certain um, feeling of um, how, a conviviality if I if I A bit
10: it. of togetherness and a bit of a good vibe
11: a, little, exactly. a, a kind of salon people environment people To feel welcomed I want people to feel welcomed it's
10: very important to me And there's a big French focus at Paris Plus that's obviously a matter of geography but does that give you an opportunity to show what's coming out of French art schools French galleries across the country because it is very strong here in a way that perhaps it isn't at other art fairs in other parts of the world
11: Of course, for us, uh, context is of paramount importance. We run a cultural event, so it's for us absolutely crucial that this event has resonance across the city. And for this reason, we've decided to expand the size of the public program, which is the fruit of a collaboration with all the public institutions, private foundations, with the city itself. We aim to make this a true Parisian cultural event. And for that reason, it has to have a specific identity Uh, for our visitors also. To whom we, you know, cater four times a year, not including all the major uh, art events, you know, uh, during the during uh, the year. And so, we just want to offer our audience something else. We just want to make sure that when they're here, they know that they're in Paris, and it's a great occasion to showcase the excellency of the French scene and, uh, you know, the the future like emerging artists, like the future blue chip that you might encounter on the French market. Yeah,
10: it's been apparent in some of your communications and other another, another interviews, Clément, that you are encouraging people to really explore the city as a powerful art brand as Art Basel is, it wants, its, it wants eyeballs on the fair, on the galleries and the booths so it's a sort of act of generosity to go come and see us but go and get lost in the city, go and find these other galleries, these, these nitty gritty places perhaps as well and find new artists and things, is that, a, at what point did you start having that discussion to to sort of have eyeballs on you but encourage people to really discover elsewhere as well?
11: It happens at uh, different levels, you know. First, I mean, we are hosted in a public venue. Uh, this place belongs to the French state, and the landlord is the French Republic, you know. And so, it's uh, something that we think of. And the fact that we've been supported with such uh, enthusiasm by the, the city, by the Ministry of Culture, also obliges us in a way. You know, uh, we kind of have to. Payback, And as I was mentioning before, it's equally important to make this, of course, a place of business because it's what it is, you know, at its heart. It's a commercial platform, but it's also, we are well aware that it's also a place where discourse is produced. And so we feel like with a, a price ticket at 40 euros, you know, which uh, per Persian standards is pretty expensive. It's less than other Art Basel fairs, but it's still like, uh, if you're an art student in Paris, it's a sum. It's quite We feel like we have a responsibility to also, like, um, speak beyond our walls, you know, and um, with these collaborations with the museums, we've uh, established a public program which is accessible for free and open to all. It's a way for us to, certainly not to uh, uh, put ourselves up there with the museums, but to institutionalize the fair, which is uh, an important uh, aspect of Paris Plus. And just finally, the weekend is in the offing. What are a couple of things that,
10: if you weren't running this fair, that you would be scampering off to go and see personally this weekend in Paris?
11: Well, I mean, the, the quality of exhibitions on view, you know, in Paris right now, it's uh, pretty sensational. The Rothko retrospective at the Fondation Vuitton, the Mike Kelly retrospective at the Bourse de Commerce, plus sir Serpas and Lilo Zano, which is actually a work that, in my opinion, is really highly underappreciated and needs to be rediscovered enthusiastically. Um, Easy Wood, you know, at La Fête Anticipation, paired with Hakim Smith, I mean, those are like it's just a, a number of like the, the few exhibitions. The Musée d'Art Moderne, you know, has uh, uh, Dana Schutz, Nicolas de Stael, Wade Guyton. Uh, right across the street at Palais de Tokyo is Lily Renault de War. So also institutions they really have stepped up right now. Culturally speaking, there is um, so many ways to be satisfied. You know.
10: So you're saying cancel the Eurostar and stay, stay another week at least?
11: Well, if not two, you know. <laughs>
10: clement uh, i can see you having to be being nabbed by someone uh, you've got you're a busy man we'll let you get back to the uh, back to the fair but th- thank you very much indeed
11: thanks to you i think like americans they have this expression that if you want to get something don't ask a busy person so <laughs> i appreciate thank you
0: you're with the curator our weekly highlights show here on monocle radio i'm Carlotta rubello It's time now for a tasty treat, because Danish chef Mads Batefield is on a mission to introduce Copenhageners to authentic Edomai Sushi. His restaurant, Sushi Anaba, is unlike any other sushi purveyor in Scandinavia. That's because of its focus on the classic version of Tokyo sushi, which uses only local seafood. There's no salmon, and heaven forbid, no mayo or avocado either. Monocle's Copenhagen correspondent Michael Booth went along to meet Mads and his Japanese colleague Machu Kujima to hear about the challenges of sourcing top-quality seafood and persuading the Danes to eat less popular ingredients.
2: To show the Danes how much beautiful fish that we have around, that's one big thing, and just to show how it should be, that it should be simple, it should be a good quality of rice, it should be a good quality of uh, fish and wasabi. Yeah, we do it. Uh, we do it in the traditional Tokyo way. We Use dark vinegar. It's dark a red by, vine- vinegar. Yeah, dark red. Yeah, it's uh, made from the lease of the sake production. And The one we use is from Hyogo, and it's been uh, matured for seven years before they release it. And then we use a little bit of uh, Danish apple cider vinegar. And then we only use salt, no and, sugar at all. And and you learned this in a top sushi restaurant in Ginza, in Tokyo. Yes. When when did you first go there? But I went to Japan. First time back in 2010, uh, I had a, a few uh, tours around after that, and to the restaurant at Hakoku where I trained, it was it was 100 the the simplicity. I'm trained in a, in a French kitchen where you can you can always add on, and you want to add on, you want to put more f- deep flavors uh, in the sauce. You want more thyme, more garlic, more like you built and then uh, in the Japanese kitchen
9: you try to remove. But there's a reason why it takes years and years and years to train to be an Edeme sushi chef. And I wonder, explaining that to Danes and why they suddenly have to pay, uh, you know, 1700 kroner for their sushi instead of 350 kroner. Yeah. How did you go about doing that? Because it's, as you say, it looks simple, but it's not. No. (laughs) That was also one of
2: my biggest. Uh, not issues, but worrying points when I opened the restaurant because I knew that we we're gonna have a lot of these top food critics from Denmark. But for me, of course, I respect them, but I don't respect their opinion about sushi. Because obviously, <laughs> they don't have any, they don't, uh, they don't have any knowledge about it. So why should they come to my restaurant and teach me? Or of course, they give us good, uh, good critics. So it was okay. And, and, and how about the general
9: public? Uh, I think
2: the general public was. Uh, very very open right and uh, of course in the start we had a lot of guests who obviously been traveling to Japan and uh, had the understanding of how it should be and we opened just before uh, Corona so a lot of people that were supposed to travel went to to our restaurant instead of uh, to get the same a little bit of the same feeling a little bit of uh, being out of Copenhagen and since then we had uh, quite a lot of tourists who's coming now Due to we're only serving uh, Scandinavian seafood instead of most restaurants in the in the US or even in uh, in England uh, importing a lot of Japanese. Uh, so it's
9: all locally sourced fish.
2: Yeah, the only thing we have uh, we have tuna from uh, from the south of Portugal. How about the tuna that's now swimming in the Urson, just a few <laughs> yards away from where we're sitting? I think it's exciting with with the tuna in uh, in our waters, but. We don't have the traditions again. We don't have the traditions to to catch and eat
9: raw tuna. Sushi scene in Copenhagen is still a bit rubbish. Mm. I mean, maybe you can't say that, but I can.
2: No, it is 100%. Okay, you can say (laughs) 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 it. Are you a bit
9: disappointed that you haven't like paved a way, or maybe you're you're just happy that you have your clientele here? But the rest of us, we're a bit disappointed that it's just still a bit crap. Yeah, no, and
2: I understand why it's crap because it's uh, very, very hard labor and uh, these. Places who sells it for very very cheap money, of course, are maybe not paying the best uh, money per hour, and it's just using a bad product. It's and the it's only reason why you can make money on, on sushi, because either you pay the staff very very bad, or you're using a very very bad product. It's it's not possible to to serve it for, for less money than we are, because it's just taken. We have four chefs working every day for 14 hours to serve how I many? We serve we serve 24 guests. Can I ask, does it make money? Yes, I do. it do. Uh, I think it's been very, very uh, important for me in the start that it needs to be a, a healthy project. The staff needs to be paid well. We need to keep our hours. And after that,
9: we, we can see where, where can we de- develop. Can we of- and uh, so we're in, in the kitchen now, and I can see you have all the beautiful tableware that you would expect from a top sushi ya in, in Tokyo. Have you accumulated this? Where do you get your, your tableware from? <laughs> everything is uh, selected uh, on the trips. Oh, so it's all come in suitcases from
2: yeah. Japan? Exactly, exactly. Um, the, after I was living there for a year, I brought 120 kilos back uh, from everything, from like uh, working jackets to ceramics to shoes to, of course, knives and uh, pots Saki and pans. cups,
9: sake yeah. bottles. Out in the kitchen of Sushi Anaba, Mas Batterfield introduced me to Machu Kojima, his Japanese colleague. I asked him when he arrived in Denmark and his first impressions. I have to say, uh, Kojima-san was the epitome of Japanese diplomacy and good manners, so I couldn't get him to say anything bad about the sushi scene in his adopted city.
7: Three, three Three and a uh, half years ago?
9: And when you first came to Denmark, mm-hmm. what did you think about Danish food and the Danes and Denmark?
7: I think it's just a bit beautiful
9: country, yes, beautiful culture also, yes,
7: yes. yeah, I like it. Yes.
9: What, a, what about how they cook fish in Denmark?
7: Herring, you uh-huh.
9: know. You like it? Yes, I like very much. The pickled herring? Yes, pickled herring. But
7: of course, Japan have the same herring they cooked the a different way. What, a, what about
9: the sushi you've eaten in Denmark? <laughs>
7: As a sushi restaurant, mm, of course, uh, different. that's sushi also sushi. It's sushi. Yeah, it's but, sushi. But of course,
9: yeah. Of course, yeah, but uh, different. What What's your uh, favorite Danish food? Smørbrød. Smørbrød. Yes, smørbrød. Yes. And your favorite topping on the smørbrød? Some pickled herring. Uh, yeah. mm, sometimes pickled herring, and it uh, smoked the eel. Oh yeah, mm, that's my favorite to, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I reckon it's I was. No, I have a The Danes living on hundreds of islands surrounded by water mm. are eating actually less and less fish. Is that also an EU issue or is it a Danish government issue or is it just bad education amongst the Danes or are they just obsessed with pork? Is that the, is that the problem? I think it's a very,
2: very bad education from especially my parents, the generation of my parents. And uh, we always had fish when I was at my grandparents, they were living close to water. But if we had fish at my parents' house, it was 100% uh, fish fingers, the frozen fish fingers. <laughs> yeah. We do have a lot of very, very good fish in Denmark and, and Scandinavia. I think the quality is, for most of it, it's the same quality as Japanese. But the, the other whole problem about that is in the, in the Euro, e, EU, we need to freeze every fish. To serve it raw. Really? So, everything you serve here raw has yes. been frozen? Yes, except for the how to say the, the clams and the, the um, crustaceans. Again, it's a lack of um, craft, it's a lack of uh, intelligence, and then we just say, then we just make it worse for
9: everybody. Are there things that you wanted to serve here that you've experienced in Japan that you just think the Danes are not ready for? I'm thinking of things like shirako. Mm. Uh, like cod sperm yeah uh, do you serve those kind of maybe more challenging ingredients yeah yeah we do we do uh, we do serve it when it's
2: seasonal and when we can get it and the same goes with uh, with monkfish liver yeah we try to push our fishermen every week yeah. to uh to to get it for us, but
9: they're throwing it away otherwise yeah
2: yeah oh my god even though that we want to pay like the double of what a tate costs it just it's yeah. just a yeah, yeah they don't understand it which I think this whole Sushi Anaba project is going to take many, many years, like they did with the Noma. It's not going to be finished in 5 or 10 years. Maybe it's going to be 20 or 40 years before we we see monkfish liver everywhere uh, and uh, cut sperm everywhere. Because I think it's delicacy. If you treat it correct and if you serve it correct, it's 100% a delicacy.
9: Well, I do hope Sushi and Abba is around for at least another 20 years, but maybe the Danes will learn a little more about handling, preparing and eating great seafood before that. For Monocle in Copenhagen, I'm Michael Booth.
0: And finally, we round off our weekly highlights with a conversation about the weird and wonderful world of corporate jargon. Monocle's Zemanelson was joined by panelists Phil Clark and Patricia Cohen to discuss this and to go through some examples too. Let's have a listen.
6: Phil, would you be so kind as to pick up the piece of paper, because I'm going to cue you, because we're on the radio and I need to read something out loud for me. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, try this for size. When Rolls-Royce announced the loss of 2,500 jobs this week, the company CEO issued this statement. Over to you, Phil. Could you momentarily be the company CEO of Rolls-Royce?
12: I will chide will, I will my, my <laughs> finest Rolls-Royce CEO tone. This is another step on our multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing, competitive, resilient and growing Rolls-Royce.
6: Just in case we didn't quite catch that, um, could you possibly read it again for us, Phil, so we can get it, we can absorb it in full.
12: This is another step on our multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing, competitive, resilient and growing Rolls-Royce.
6: Patty. What do you think that means?
13: So that means we're firing 2,500 people.
6: (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about corporate jargon here, and we're going to devote the last few minutes of today's program into the joys and the nightmares of when things are written, almost either deliberately or unintentionally, to make us not understand a darned word of it when you listen to the this is another step on a multi-year transformation journey to build a high-performing competitive resilient and growing growing rolls royce what do you think that the comms team has been doing uh in the run-up to the to the publication of that of that statement i suspect that there's quite a few people in the room
13: Oh, absolutely! Uh, but you know, this is this is what they're paid to do, Un- unfortunately, it seems that among those layoffs, the comms team is not going to be <laughs> among them. <laughs>
6: <laughs> and when you're dealing we, before we came on arrows, we were talking about you know how we were going to approach this, and one of the things that I do when I go to the New York Times is I am a reader, I'm a subscriber. Let's be clear clear about that. But I come to the New York Times for people like you to act as a translator. For me, I mean, how much of that are you encountering in your daily sort of slash through the jungle of economic news? I mean, this beat
13: in particular, and I, I've been at the Times for more than twenty-five years, and I've written about everything you can think of. But economics uh, is one sector, industry, academics is another, where you know there's a high premium on kind of lingo and and particular framework. Um, and You have said framework. That's jargon in that's itself. That's right. Yes, that's, that's jargon
0: too. <laughs> one point, I have talk. to
13: say, you know, in fact, actually, you know, you make a good point because I feel one of the, you know, when you when you come to a new beat, you're learning a lot and there's a lot you don't know. And obviously, I know a lot more than when I first started. On the other hand, though, you begin to kind of internalize a lot of this jargon Uh, yourself. And I have found myself really needing to check my own writing to make sure I get it out. Where in the beginning, I didn't know what it meant, so I didn't use any of it. Um, but that, I I think that's the good thing about having kind of a non specialist sometimes coming to something, because you see it with a fresh eye, but, but definitely in economics, you know, and it's not only, I mean, with that, it's not only the, the, terms themselves. I mean, things are complicated.
6: (laughs) It's a a difficult thing, isn't it? Because you you end up having to, as a broadcaster, I end up having to talk to people who I always think are intelligent but ignorant, which is, if you've taken the time to have a listen to The Monocle Daily, then you must have a pretty high level of curiosity and intelligence and you want to know what's going on in the world but the ignorance actually is is based entirely on the fact that you have a knowledge gap and so it is a huge challenge isn't it now you in the business of teaching people filling in those knowledge gaps phil how hard is it for you sometimes to teach students something that they will understand including the depth as well as the breadth but then when you're getting when you're marking their essays what's coming back at you
12: yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, I've seen sentences like this Rolls Royce <laughs> one in, in essays that I've marked, but I, I've I've also seen it in some of my colleagues' writing. I mean, it's you know it's a real challenge in academia of you know this sense of dealing sometimes with really arcane knowledge, a very very specialist technical lingo that's understood by your colleagues, but we also as academics have this public function. You know, me sitting in this studio, I guess, is a small sort of way of doing that, where, where you're, you're you're not only trying to translate what you're working on uh, to your students, but you're, you're we're trying to do it out in the public domain. And the job then is to get rid of this kind of language and and, and express complicated things simply and digestibly. I, I always worry if I see something that it's waffly as that, that either the person saying it doesn't really understand what they're talking about, or in this case related to Rolls-Royce that there's something really nasty that's being hidden here that there's a kind of corporate language technique which is to use very vague nouns that slip off the tongue very smoothly to hide something that is really brutal i mean as patty said before probably the retrenchment and in fact, in fact even that word <laughs> the sacking yeah. the sacking I mean, of people I mean, or restructure is the one that we love in academia everything's about a restructure which makes it seem very benign but often i think there are very unbenign things being, I mean, being look, hidden this by this
13: george orwell Talked about this decades ago. Politics of the English language, and it's it's governments, it's businesses, it's it's academia. I mean, as you mentioned, I think probably your colleagues are more guilty of it probably than your students, and it usually and it does get rewarded by because graduate students are supposed to write and talk in this way uh, that's that really puts a veil over uh, rather than making clear understanding. And I mean, this is clearly trying to turn, you know, th- this message is for Wall Street that Rolls-Royce put out. It- it's not for the public. It's-, it's for, you know, we're looking to make more profits and we don't care, You know, we fire people to do it.
6: Well, in the final minutes that we've got remaining on today's programme, I thought we might enjoy um, just going through a couple of personal favourites here at Monaco. One I absolutely adore is um, when Theresa May had sort of taken over the burning coals of the Brexit project and was trying to hold them in public um, and was trying to explain to a rather sort of shell-shocked country uh, what exactly was about to happen. Uh, So we're going back to 2016. It's just past the Brexit vote. Let's have a listen to what she had to say. It's not about this sort of Brexit or that sort of Brexit. It's about a red, white and blue Brexit. That is the right Brexit, the right deal for Britain. I do love a red, white and blue Brexit. That was wonderful. That was someone who didn't have any examples to back up her message, was it? You are just sitting there with an absolutely empty vessel. What did you think of that?
13: I mean, well, you know... You probably followed all of this a lot closer back in the day, and I can't believe all these years later it's still such an issue that's coming up. But yes, I, I was about to ask you, what is a red, white, blue Brexit? I mean, it's 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 a Brexit wrapped around with the, the British flag, I guess, wrapped around it, or
6: the American flag for that matter. It's had, it is that absolute issue, isn't it? That she had nothing to say, and she had, more importantly, she had no examples to back up what she was trying to say. She had no clue what she was doing, and so to sort of invoke an emotional response. Was was her best efforts. What did you think of that?
12: Film? Yeah, the, the the recourse to nationalism when in trouble, you know, the, the leap, leap for the flag, at, at almost in a kind of panicked gesture. It's and 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 the frightening thing is that Theresa May was was not the worst of the Tory leaders at the time trying to obfuscate what was really going on with Brexit. I mean, she herself, I th- you know, I think probably had at least some sort of nascent Remainer tendencies about her and was you know trying desperately to sell an <laughs> idea that she really hadn't really been responsible for, unlike some of her colleagues who who had deliberately crafted this thing and were out there trying to tell us that it was it was going to be sunlit uplands and all, all, all the other nonsense yeah, yeah. They, were, they were worse than her
6: let's have another quick li- listen to uh someone trying to say something when they actually haven't got anything to say here's kamala harris in uh, last year talking to the ASEAN countries on climate change which is obviously something that no one can really quite get to grips with and understand so this is how kamala harris has a go
8: we will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work, operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on.
6: Pashi.
13: I, I, you know... I have a feeling she lost her place in the speech because <laughs> there, there really. That seems that at the end. It seems almost this non sequitur. That's that's in there. Uh, but of course, the theme is we're going to work together to work together so that we can work together.
6: Great intentions. I mean, she's not work shy. Let's be honest. <laughs>
12: No, it's 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 still grates on the ears uh, after all this time, and you can you can all, it's a little bit like the Theresa May one. You can hear the panic in her voice <laughs> yes. of oh my goodness, I've gone down this linguistic tunnel. How do I get out of this? And what I'll do is just repeat myself and repeat myself and repeat myself and just hope people aren't listening or I can move on to something else, except so, when you're that high profile, it's much easier said than done. So
6: this is more an accident rather than de- the deliberate crafting of Rolls-Royce nonsense or or Theresa May having been given a slogan that she had to pin her soul to? I
12: think the Rolls-Royce one is really frightening in, in how deliberate it was, how strategic it was. These, these others are, I, I mean, they do reveal, I think, politicians who, who have not grasped the solution that they are trying to articulate. I think that there is something substantive there, that there is a sense that they don't have an answer either to Brexit or to climate change. And so the the waffle is not accidental. Um but 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 there's something less kind of deliberate and sinister in, in those moments than, than what I see in the Rolls Royce one.
13: I mean I guess the only thing I would differ is to say that, oh well they're they, they don't really have an argument. I, I do think the the ambiguity, the vagueness is on purpose. I mean, these are high-profile characters. They know everything they're going to say. And it's much worse to say something substantive that might be controversial than to say nothing at all <laughs> in very vague terms. So I do think a lot of these uh, – and, and I agree with you that the, the World's Worst thing is different but, – but a lot of these speeches are crafted to basically not say anything
6: <laughs> new. Perhaps by uh explanation let's move to our final clip um a program a comedy a political satire in the united kingdom called the thick of it i think it became veep in the u.s um there is a conversation of three panicked ministerial assistants in a car when they actually have to go to a press conference where they actually don't have anything to announce um and this is how they approach it so ladies and gentlemen this is fiction but i think it's perhaps summed up everything we've just said in the last five minutes
1: on
4: target, yes. under budget Cold-faced politics Coal, Absolutely, yes, I like that Not that's wasting resources No, that's good, let's do that Let's do, do that. that, let's yes. go for that We trick them yes. We trick them up.
7: A tinselly thing And they come along And then we say, ha-ha yeah. ah.
0: Ha-ha, indeed Well, that's all we've got time for On this edition of The Curator The show was produced by David Stevens And presented by me, Carlotta Ribello Join us again next week To hear some of the very best Of the programmes here on Monocle Radio Thanks for listening And have a great week